Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, that uh, you are good and that you love us, and so grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning and to uh, consider uh, your truth, to consider the resurrection, uh, to think about your word from 1 John. I pray that you would bless us this morning, give us hearts and minds that are attentive and, uh, and would you increase our affections for you and make us more uh, passionate for the gospel and for the kingdom and uh, for your church. And, uh, and so we love you. We're grateful that you uh, have loved us and that you have given us your spirit and your scriptures and pray that we would be faithful to those today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors uh, here. Uh, lots of things that we talk about in theological equipping are somewhat controversial within, uh, within Christianity, within uh, evangelicalism. Uh, so when we're talking about dispensationalism versus covenantal theology, when we're talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism, when we're talking about gender roles or infant versus uh, believer's baptism uh, or something like that, we know that many of you that we're talking to in, uh, in these contexts uh, actually might not agree with us on some of these issues. And so when we're tackling those types of uh, conversations, we're actually trying to persuade you to believe something that at this point you might not actually uh, believe. But uh, other times, we're not dealing with subjects that are actually debated within the church, but rather uh, debated between Christians and those who are uh, unbelievers. And so uh, there are times that we assume that most, if not everyone that's actually present for theological equipping already holds the same position that we're talking about. Uh, so for, for example, if you're a Christian, then you don't really uh, doubt, you might have questions about, but you don't really doubt the reality of the resurrection of Christ, which is what we're talking about today. So why is it that we're talking about this? If this is something that we can all generally agree on already, why is it that we're talking about it? And I think there's at least two reasons that we should talk about this. Uh, the first reason is because we want to resource you. And so you personally might already believe everything that we talk about today, but you have a child or you have a parent or you have a brother or a sister or a nephew or a neighbor or a coworker or something like that that doesn't already believe these things. And so we want to do what Ephesians 4 says to do, which is that we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You're the saints. We're the saints collectively, and so it is our responsibility to engage our neighbors and coworkers and families and so forth with the truths of the gospel. So we want to resource you. This is not merely about you regurgitating these things that you have uh, learned, but you being equipped and empowered uh, to be evangelists and missionaries and, uh, and so forth in your context. So that's the first reason we want to talk about these things. The second reason is because there is this truth that you see uh, throughout uh, history, uh, and that is that what is simply assumed eventually is going to be lost. What is simply assumed is eventually going to be lost. And so D.A. Carson uh, points to this sort of historical pattern that you're going to see, which is that you'll, you'll see throughout history that, that there is a generation who accepts uh, the gospel, and then you have the next generation that simply assumes it, and then the, uh, the next generation kind of confuses it 
And then the, the, finally, when, by the time you get to the fourth generation, the gospel is completely lost. And so you can see elements of that, even our own culture, where there is this, uh, we're kind of on the precipice between the third and fourth generation when it comes to certain uh, moral issues, uh, things like human sexuality. And you have uh, multiple people in evangelicalism who are super confused about the topic, and others who have just completely discarded uh, the, the, the biblical idea of sexuality. And so we can't take the resurrection for granted, uh, especially because, and I'm paraphrasing Paul here, it's kind of a big deal. And uh, so we don't want to simply assume it, assume that you already agree with it, and so therefore uh, allow it to remain untested and unproven uh, and so forth, because eventually that means that our kids or our kids' kids or whatever uh, will probably just uh, forget about it. So what we want to do today is dive into what we're calling a defense of the resurrection. We've talked before about the, uh, the theological implications of the resurrection. What is it that the resurrection accomplishes? Uh, and some of those sorts of things. We've talked about our own future resurrection, uh, which is our ultimate hope that we would be resurrected, not be disembodied souls in the sky. But this week, we're not talking about those particular things. Instead, we're dealing uh, with uh, this from an apologetic standpoint. Uh, can, can we really demonstrate his, historically, did Jesus really rise from the dead. That's what we're really trying to deal with uh, today. But before we uh, kind of move forward, I want to address two objections that uh, you might encounter regarding this topic. Two objections as you're talking about the question of did Jesus really rise from the dead and can we actually demonstrate that historically? There are two different objections, at least two. Others we'll deal with uh, as we go. Uh, But they are that the authors of Scripture were biased and thus the Bible is untrustworthy. And the second one is that the resurrection cannot be proven. And, uh, and so let's talk about those. The first one, that the authors are not objective. Uh, they're not objective, they are uh, biased. Well, this objection basically says that there's no evidence for the resurrection except for by Christians. Uh, and Christians are naturally biased to believe it, and so therefore it's untrustworthy. But there's a number of problems with that sort of line of thinking. First, there, there was no such thing as quote-unquote objective journalism in the first century, right? There might not even be objective journalism today, but certainly there wasn't back then. There wasn't uh, media organizations. There wasn't a CNN or a Fox News or uh, some sort of media outlet to simply quote-unquote report the news. This, this objection basically assumes that if it were true, if the resurrection were true, that there would be non-Christians who would have written about it. But that's kind of silly when you really think about it. Uh, we do have mentions of, of the claims of Christians by uh, Jewish and Roman historians like uh, Josephus and Pliny and Tacitus, uh, but not explicit accounts of the resurrection. But we shouldn't expect for unbelievers to have these accounts of the resurrection. Why would we expect that? Why would, we, uh, why would someone who didn't believe in the resurrection write about the resurrection? That, that sort of objection doesn't actually disprove the resurrection, but it just shows that unbelievers didn't believe it, which is uh, uh, redundant, right? And so that's the first reason that this, this line of thinking doesn't work. Second, this objection fails to account for the fact that skeptics, unbelievers, did in fact witness and testify to the resurrection. Who's the most famous of those? Paul. The Apostle Paul was a profound skeptic, right? He's an actual persecutor of the church. He is uh, uh, signing the death warrant of Christians for believing in the resurrection. And so he's a profound skeptic until when? 
until he actually witnesses the resurrection. He sees the resurrected Christ. So he would have been, of all people, he would have been predetermined. He would have been biased. He would have been subjectively inclined to not believe the resurrection. So here's what this objection basically entails. Show me evidence of the resurrection from someone who didn't believe in the resurrection even after witnessing the resurrection, right? So it doesn't make any sort of sense. Third, bias isn't always bad. We need to recognize that bias isn't always a bad thing. Uh, Imagine that some uh, bad guys break into your house and before you can uh, react, right? This is Texas. So before you can grab one of your plethora of guns, then uh, those people attack you and they rob you and they steal all of your stuff. But you see their faces very, very clearly. And so when they are uh, eventually caught, then you go to testify against them. Would you be biased? Why? Because they beat you up and they stole your stuff. You're biased. You're subjective in this moment. You're personally angry at them. Does that therefore mean that your testimony is necessarily unreliable? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? And so just because you're biased, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily wrong. And so the fact that early Christians uh, were biased doesn't mean that they were wrong. In fact, what we see uh, in uh, Scripture itself is that the authors of Scripture were biased. But the bias that they show is a bias away from things like hypocrisy and deceit and false witness and so forth. They're biased towards the truth Uh, even when it costs them, as we will talk about. And lastly, this objection fails to recognize that no one is really objective when it comes to this uh, particular topic. If the resurrection means what the Bible says that it means, if the resurrection means that Jesus is Lord and it demands your ultimate allegiance and repentance, then no one can be an objective historian when it comes to this question. Every single person, whether you're in this room or not, whether you're a believer or not, every single person has a personal interest in whether or not the resurrection is true. Eternal life and death, heaven and hell hang in the balance. So we either desperately want it to be true or desperately need it to be false. Christians are subjective, but so are skeptics. So rather than simply dismissing each other as biased, let's actually examine which view is most likely and most probable. So that's the first objection. The second objection is that the resurrection cannot be proven, and thus we can't know it for sure. And that's kind of true if we have some sort of illogical uh, standard for what constitutes proof. History is uh, inherently difficult to prove. It isn't like math or science. I can demonstrate that water generally boils at 212 degrees. It generally freezes at 32. I can mathematically demonstrate that one plus one equals two, but how do you prove history? It isn't repeatable or measurable in the same way. How do you prove that the Holocaust occurred? How do you prove that Caesar crossed the Rubicon? How do we prove something when we can't repeat it or measure it? Well, when it comes to history, we rely on what's called inference to the best explanation. In other words, we take all of the historical evidence that's available to us, and then we posit the most likely explanation. Inference to the best explanation. So suppose that I wanted to prove that my name is Jeff. How would I go about doing so? Well, I would show you my passport, 
I would show you my driver's license. I would, uh, I would show you my social security card or whatever it might be, my birth certificate. I would introduce you to my family and to my friends. I would tell you the story about how I was named after Jeffrey Chaucer and bore you with all of those uh, details. There are a number of things that I could do to actually help you see that my name is Jeff. Could all of that information, though, be faked? Yeah, I suppose it could, right? But we don't live our lives generally with that level of suspicion. If I tell you my name is Jeff, you generally believe that my name is Jeff. And if I show you all this evidence, you generally believe all of this sort of uh, evidence. So again, we don't look for absolute certainty when it comes to history, when it comes to proving these sorts of things, but rather we look for reasonable assurance based on available data. Is it possible that I was really some sort of wanted assassin? And, and I've just, I've changed my name, I've changed my appearance, uh, I've undergone plastic surgery, I've chosen to take up revident, a residence here in McKinney as a pastor, the one place, the one job that no one would ever think to look. Is that possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. It's more probable for Zach. He's got a beard. He's always doing military analogies and so forth. But that's not the way that we live. When we approach the question of history, when we approach the question of the resurrection, we understand our job is not mathematical proof, but rather what is actually the most likely probable explanation. Belief in the resurrection takes faith, but faith isn't blind belief in spite of the evidence. Rather, the evidence is actually quite compelling when it comes to this particular uh, topic. But think about all the, the dubious historical events we heard about growing up. All right? Did Benjamin Franklin really fly a kite and uh, discover electricity? He didn't invent electricity, but did he discover electricity? Did Nero fiddle while Rome burned? Did an apple actually fall on Isaac Newton's head? Did George Washington actually what? Chop down a cherry tree, all right? At the end of the day, we don't know. It doesn't really matter, all right? Uh, you know, gravity is a true concept whether or not an ap apple actually fell on Isaac Newton's uh, head. But some things do actually matter. In particular, the resurrection matters. Was there actually someone named Jesus? Was he actually crucified? Did he actually rise from the dead? This is of utmost importance. Why is it so important? A few reasons this is so important. Number one, it affirms Christ's testimony of himself as the eternal and divine son of God. You get that from Romans chapter one. Number two, it validates our faith in Christ and scripture. In other words, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christ is a liar and scripture is flawed. Number three, it distinguishes Christianity from other religions by grounding it in objective historical Events. I don't know if you realize, realize this or not, but uh, Christianity is really the only religion. Uh, you could also point to uh, uh, Judaism, which is obviously uh, the seedbed from which Christianity arose. But it's the only religion that's really grounded in these objective historical events. When it comes to Islam, Islam stands or falls on what? The, the dreams or visions of the prophet Muhammad. One man whether or not he actually had a dream. Can you actually verify that? No. Or Buddhism stands on the dreams or visions of one man, uh, Gautama Buddha. Hindus and various tribal religions worship gods uh, of their own minds and places. Mormonism stands on the vision of one man, Joseph Smith. Christianity points to a unique historical event with hundreds of eyewitnesses. 
Another, uh, another reason that this is so important, it, declare, it declares that Christ's sacrifice was accepted and our sins are forgiven. That's the argument that you see in Hebrews uh, chapters 8 through, uh, through 10. In short, if Christ is not raised, as Paul would write, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And we are, of, of, we are of all people most to be pitied. So again, paraphrasing Paul, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, so what I want to do is just give an overview of the evidences for the historicity, for the reliability of the resurrection. I'm going to try to be as comprehensive as possible. We only have about 50 minutes, uh, and so uh, there's a lot more that could be said. We can point you to resources uh, and so forth. But uh, uh, the, the argument today is not merely uh, why Christ, uh, Christians say that the resurrection is true, but why that's actually the most logical and probable explanation of the historical data. And so there's three main lines of defense because I'm a bit Baptistic. I did it uh, alliteratively. And so three E's. Number one, the empty tomb. Number two, the experiences of the disciples. Number three, the establishment of the church. On the basis of these three lines of evidence, I think that you can conclude that, that the resurrection is actually the best explanation of the historical data that we actually have. So let's start with the empty tomb. This is by far the most important evidence. Everything rises or falls on the basis of this. If the body of Jesus is still in the tomb, then nothing else matters. If the grave isn't empty, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, uh, as we just read, that you're still in your sins and your faith is futile. You might as well have gotten drunk last night and slept in today because Christianity means nothing if Christ is still in the tomb. Occasionally, you'll hear some quote-unquote pastor on the news or in some National Geographic special or something like that say that even if the body of Jesus were found, then Christianity would still be beautiful and worthy of our attention. Biblically, that is utterly ignorant. If Christ is dead then Christianity is not beautiful and good. It is worse than worthless. It's unloving, it's unkind, and it's untrue. So the empty tomb is actually a really, really important point. So how do we make the argument for the empty tomb? Well, you begin with the lack of a body. How is it that you account for the fact that no body was ever produced? How do you account for the fact that no body of Jesus was ever found, was ever produced? Bear in mind that historically, the Romans and the Jews were not fans of Christians. They wanted the Christ story and Christ himself to be dead and buried. And all they had to do was bring forth a body. Yet no body was ever shown. It seems highly unlikely that they would have failed to produce a body if one were available. They have the one undeniable bit of evidence that would have completely quelled this rebellion and they didn't offer it up. That seems highly illogical. This is particularly important in light of the fact that uh, even Jewish authorities admitted that the tomb was empty. You see that in the Bible itself where, where you have certain uh, Jewish leaders who, uh, to, who offered to basically uh, bribe uh, the, uh, the Romans with the idea that the, the, the disciples had stolen the body. And, uh, but not only do you see this in scripture, but you actually see this in Jewish literature as well. There are ancient Jewish documents that are polemics against Christians, that is kind of this, this uh, argument against Christianity, and what they don't argue is that the body of Jesus is still in the grave. Instead, they argue that 
the disciples stole the body. Now, we'll deal with the, uh, the claim whether or not it's actually likely the disciples stole the body, but don't miss the implication that for the Jews even, Jesus' body was not in the grave. That's a huge, significant, profound fact of history that even the opponents of this view said Jesus' body is not in the grave. That's significant. So how do we explain the lack of a body? Well, logically, there are two options. The first one is that the grave is not empty and that the body is actually there. The second uh, option is that the grave is actually empty. Let's think about for a second the grave not being empty. All right, how do we make historical sense of that? Does that actually account for the facts of history? If, if the grave isn't empty, then you have to come up with a theory uh, for why a body wasn't produced, an actual compelling theory. Anyone can make up a theory, um, spontaneous combustion or something like that, but you have to come up with an actual compelling, historical, logical theory. When Jews are desperately trying to stop the spread of Christianity, and later Romans are persecuting Christians, all you have to do to disprove the resurrection and indeed disprove all of Christianity is simply show a body. The fact that they don't is a strong indicator that they can't. And if they can't, that's a strong indicator that the body is not there for them to uh, uh, produce. I was, as I was thinking about this lesson, I was trying, racking my mind, trying to think of a good alternative explanation to consider all of the options I honestly couldn't come up with much. The best I could come up with is maybe you could argue that the body of Jesus was in the grave, but everyone simply forgot where the tomb was, where the grave was. That's literally the best that I could come up with, but that's absurd. This isn't like forgetting where you, you know, put your keys last night or something like that. This is a belief for which the proponents were willing to die and opponents are willing to kill. There's a, there's a scene in uh, the American version of The Office where two characters are trying to locate this particular style of potato chips, and uh, they're calling the manufacturers and all these kind of things, and another character walks up and asks what they're doing. They're saying, we're looking for these potato chips, and that character then turns to them and says, did you check the vending machine? And uh, then the guy sarcastically responds something that I won't say. But uh, the point is, that's what that reminds me of, as if... You know, all of the people are thinking Jesus rose from the dead and they checked the temple and they checked the upper room and they checked, uh, you know, the valley of Gehenon and so, fo so forth, but they didn't think to take the, check the grave, the one place that they would have just checked. So it's, again, it's absurd. Early Christians, early Romans, early Jews uh, didn't check the one place where it actually was. They forgot where the, uh, the tomb of Jesus was. Jer Joseph of Arimathea forgot where his own tomb was. That seems highly unlikely. So it seems most likely historically that the grave was empty. We haven't proven the resurrection, but we have shown that it's at least a, a greater probability that the grave was empty than not. And someone who thinks otherwise would have to give compelling evidence to explain the historical data. So I think though that we can safely assume that the grave is empty, what does that mean? Again, that doesn't prove the resurrection, there are a number of reasons that the grave could be empty. I came up with a few options. One, I only mentioned this because a New Testament critic, an actual New Testament critic came up with this theory that maybe an animal stole the body. Maybe an animal stole the body. Well, the problem with this view are myriad. I'm just gonna mention a couple. Um, 
not only does it suppose that some random animal just happened to steal the body of a man who claimed that he would rise from the dead, but it also fails to account for the type of burial that we see in uh, historical data from that period and in that time. Men and women weren't laid in uh, shallow dirt graves, easily accessible to scavengers, but rather in rocky tombs with neither entrance nor exit that's going to be large enough for an animal to remove a body. So that's a, a silly sort of idea. Second option, maybe the Romans or the Jews stole the body, all right? In response to that, we would say, well, the, the, the Christian quote-unquote sect was uh, ripping apart the Roman Empire, was tearing apart Jewish tradition. Is it really reasonable to suggest that the authorities would have failed to show the body and put a stop to the resurrection myth, if indeed they had stolen the body, which is what this view claims. This option basically says that the opponents of Christianity perpetuated the very claims of Christianity that they sought to silence. To su so, so to suggest that the, uh, the opponents of Christianity stole the body is just as nonsensical as the idea of saying that the body was still in the grave and that they just forgot where the grave was. Well, the third option seems to be much more compelling when you first hear of it, and that is the idea that the disciples stole the body. This is perhaps the, first, the, the strongest uh, option at first glance. One can imagine there being all kinds of reasons, a very strong desire to keep the party going after Jesus died. And if the apostles would have gone about living the rest of their lives in luxury and ease, we can easily see how this is a much more logical sort of conclusion, a very probable sort of conclusion, but that's certainly not what we see historically. We don't see the apostles kind of kicking back on the Mediterranean, selling prayer towels, living off the royalties of the gospels and the epistles. Instead, what do we see historically? They're sawn in two. They're tossed to beasts. They're crucified, they're quartered, they're beaten, they're beheaded, they're boiled and burned alive. Is it really reasonable to think that they would have suffered such treatment for what they knew to be a lie? Lots of people will die for a lie, but not what they know to be a lie, which is what this uh, option would require. So again, that seems foolish. What about unknown grave robbers? The idea that unknown grave robbers simply stole the body of Christ. Well, first, you would say, grave robbers generally don't steal bodies. What do they steal? Possessions, right? And even then, they're not likely to look in the grave of a condemned and crucified criminal. There's highly unlikely to be any treasures in the grave of someone who was crucified as a, uh, a rebel, but let's imagine that they did. They didn't hear the scuttlebutt going around about the crucifixion. They just know it's a rich man's tomb. And so they think there's a chance. And so they take a chance, even though it's guarded by, uh, by Roman guards, who, by the way, would be killed if they let that body get away. But these guys get past the guards. So they aren't just any old, normal, everyday grave robbers. They're like first century ninja, right? They're Samaritan samurai. They're Roman Ronin. They're ninjus, right? They are ready to go. So they silently somehow rolled away the body and they get inside to search out the treasure and they don't find any treasure and so they decide last minute, change of plans, we're gonna steal the body because everyone knows there's a huge first century black market for crucified corpses 
And so rather than just grabbing and running the body, uh, grabbing the body and running, though they take the time to undress Jesus and to f- neatly fold his grave clothes, after all, that's how the disciples found them. So is that possible? I guess it's possible, but is it plausible? No. Is it really logical to think that some random grave robbers happened to pull off the greatest prank in world history and then they disappeared into obscurity? They never wrote a book about it. They never took credit for it, anything like that. They changed the entire course of human history anonymously. We could go on with other theories. Perhaps he wasn't dead in the first place. We'll talk about that in a minute. But do we really think that Roman executioners were that incompetent? And even if he isn't fully dead, even if he's just mostly dead, he isn't convincing anyone that he's risen from the dead. He's limping and wheezing and and oozing pus, all right? We can make up all kinds of theories, but the fact remains they're not nearly as logical, as rational, as probable as the resurrection. The fact remains that although other theories for what happened in the first century are uh, possible, none are as plausible as the idea that Jesus Christ actually physically rose from the dead. That's the first argument, the empty tomb. Second argument, add that to, these are not independent arguments, they're all added together. Uh, a, a strand of three cords is not easily broken sort of idea. Uh, so the second argument, the experiences of the disciples. But before we get to the disciples themselves, let's consider all the other names of people mentioned in the gospel accounts as witnesses to the resurrection. You have Mary Magdalene. You have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. You have Salome, who is the mother of uh, the disciples John and James. By the way, uh, you've probably heard this before, but, but the fact that the, uh, the tomb was originally discovered and reported by women is very historically important. Why? Because their witness is not actually historically admissible, right? In the first century, a, a woman's testimony would not have been admissible in a law court. And so if these were people just simply making up the account, if later uh, authors of scripture were making it up, they would definitely never in a million years have made women the original people to discover the empty tomb. And, uh, and so that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but in addition to these women, there's Cleopas, he's named uh, on the road to Emmaus. He's one of the disciples there. And by the way, there are not one or two or three or four. I'm gonna stop counting because the number is 500 There are more than 500 others. Paul mentions that number explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15. That's one of those uh, details that people tend to pass over. I'll mention that number and someone will say, where does that number come from? 1 Corinthians 15, 6. It says more than than 500 brothers at one time. Jesus appeared in his resurrected state. So we have all of these. And uh, Paul will write that some of them have died but many of them are still alive. In other words, anyone reading this in the first century who doubts the accounts can go ask them. There's 500 people that they can go and ask. If you don't believe the disciples, go ask them. There's a wealth of witnesses, but let's take the disciples in particular since they're the primary missionaries and preachers and it's their testimony which forms the foundation of the church. And again, I just want to apply this, this uh, inference to the best, uh, most logical explanation. So let's apply some logic by asking the questions, by asking the question, did the disciples actually believe in the resurrection? Did the disciples actually believe in the resurrection? Two options. One, they didn't believe it. 
Second option, they did believe it. So if they didn't believe it, what does that mean? That means they're, they're lying, right? But does that make sense? Now, when I was a kid, I've told you this before, I loved lying. I lied all of the time. Uh, but why? Why did I lie when I was a kid? I lied for two reasons, either to get something or to avoid something that I didn't want, to get something that I did want or to avoid something that I didn't want. I lied always in every case for my own entrance. I, interest. I never once thought, you know what I'll do? I'll make up some elaborate story that guarantees I'll get in trouble if they believe the story. Something that culminates in me, me stealing some money, kicking some little old lady in the throat or something like that. You know, and then I think, my parents, not only will they believe me, but they'll reward me for this great story, right? That's not how people lie. People don't lie against their own interests. They lie toward their own interests. Here's why I mentioned that. Because if, as we mentioned before, if the disciples all got super rich, they bought the best chariots, they bought like, uh, you know, Gucci sandals, Versace robes or whatever, and uh, they just kind of lived off of that, then maybe this theory that the disciples uh, were lying would hold water, but that isn't the case. They're boiled in oil, they're crucified, they're stoned to death, they're sawed in two, they're beheaded, and so forth. So it doesn't make sense to say that they lied. Is it really likely, not just possible, we're not just looking for possibility, but probability, is it uh, uh, probable that all of them would persist, that not one of them would crack over time with the pressure of torture and death. And we have a, a guy who goes here, who used to work for the government helping train uh, troops to resist torture and those kinds of things. And, uh, and he said that, that everyone eventually relents. At some point, you can't withhold forever. And so it's just a matter of time of when you're going to reach your, uh, your breaking point. For example, when it comes to waterboarding, the CIA uh, says that the average CIA uh, member lasts, you know how long? 14 seconds. That's it. The average CIA member lasts about 14 seconds with that. Less time than that annoying YouTube ad that you want to, uh, to skip. So that's crazy. Right? Everyone eventually cracks, and yet there is no historical evidence of a single apostle cracking. That's super significant. So is it actually most likely that they lied? That seems highly unlikely given all, given all that we know of history and of human nature. So we can reasonably infer that they believed it. Again, at this point, we haven't proven that it happened, but we're just trying to systematically build a case brick by Brick. So they believed it. That seems to be the most logical explanation. Number of options for that, why it is that they believed it. Maybe he was never actually crucified. He kind of escaped last minute or a lookalike took his place like in, is it a tell of two cities where that happens? Uh, but, but that seems really unlikely. That, that's the kind of thing I would remember, right? Sometimes when I'm getting out of the shower, I think, did I wash my face or not? And so then I have to wash my face again because I don't want to take a chance. But I'm not likely to forget whether or not Carl was crucified or something, right? That's something I would tend to remember. I wouldn't forget that. So the idea that he was never actually crucified doesn't seem likely. Or option two, maybe he was uh, crucified, but he didn't actually die. Again, that seems highly unlikely. The Roman executioners are experts at killing people. Their own lives depended on not letting someone go. 
If someone escaped the crucifixion process, the Roman guards would pay for it with their own life. And you have the whole water from the side thing, which uh, indicates that Jesus had experienced what's called fatal hypovolemic shock and uh, what's called pericardial or pleural effusion, which is when fluid builds up around the heart or uh, the lungs. But imagine, let's imagine for a second, suspend disbelief and imagine that Jesus actually survived all of this. He was crucified, he was scourged, all of these things, but he somehow survived. He still has to get out of a sealed tomb, which is hard to do after being scourged and uh, crucified. But again, for the sake of argument, let's assume that he did it, Well, then his body is bloody and beaten and bruised and he's exhausted. If the resurrection appearances took place like a year later, then maybe he had time to heal. Maybe he could could convince people, even though he would be all scarred up and so forth. But uh, that's not the case. We have his resurrection appearances within a few days. He would be infected. He would be near death. It's like that scene in uh, Monty Python where one of the knights has both of his arms and both of his legs cut off and he says it's merely a flesh wound. You're not deceiving anybody, Jesus, if that's the case. And uh, so again, that doesn't seem likely. The apparent death hypothesis is not likely. So what other compelling uh, sort of ideas or options or hypotheses would explain how hundreds of people all believe the same event? What compelling option, and I want to emphasize the word compelling. I was watching an interview uh, a few years back where uh, this leading atheist philosopher uh, was, uh, was trying to dismantle the idea of intelligent design, and, uh, and he was arguing why there's intelligent life on earth. And he said, in all seriousness, he said, maybe aliens planted life here, which made me think then, well, where did those aliens come from? And then I thought, oh, I know the answer, other aliens. And then if you ask the question, where did those aliens come from? Eh, it's other aliens, right? Uh, and so it's just, it, it just, it doesn't actually answer the question. It just pushes it on uh, ad infinitum. And, uh, and so um, here's my point, all right? What we're looking for here are actual compelling uh, arguments. Is it possible that grave robbers stole the body? It's possible. Is it probable? No. Is it possible an animal did? It's possible. Is it probable? No. My point is you can't dismiss the claims of Christianity and then choose an even less logical, less probable, less possible option and then claim the moral or intellectual high ground. That doesn't work, all right? So maybe this is the matrix, Maybe this is all just a dream construct. Maybe that's what the disciples experienced. Maybe aliens implanted memories of the resurrection. Maybe the men in black did the flashy light thing on everybody, and that's how they thought of the resurrection. We can posit all kinds of theories, but those aren't as compelling or as probable as the actual explanation of the resurrection. But of uh, even the most likely explanations beyond the the resurrection aren't all that likely, and that is that maybe they hallucinated. What if all 500 plus people simply hallucinated? One response to that, we would say, this isn't the 60s. Everyone's not doing LSD or something like that, right? That theory doesn't make sense for a few reasons. Number one, it can't explain the physical nature of of Jesus' appearances. The disciples record eating and drinking and touching Jesus. That can't be done with hallucinations. Second, 
It doesn't explain how hundreds of people have the exact same hallucination. Hallucinations are individual, right? They're not shared experiences. They're not group projections. Imagine I came in here this morning and I said, wasn't that a great dream I had last night? All right? It's kind of like Pharaoh, right? You're like, what dream? Tell me my dream. You don't know what my dream is. We didn't have the same dream. Hallucinations like dreams generally don't transfer like that. It also doesn't explain the conversion of Paul. Three years later, Paul, this persecutor of Christians, wasn't hoping to see the resurrected uh, resurrected Lord. In fact, we've already talked about the fact he was predisposed, he was biased, he was inclined to not believe it. So he would have not been primed to have this hallucination or whatever it might be. Most significantly, the hallucination theory can't deal with the evidence that we already talked about before, which is the empty tomb, and we have to keep those in mind. Each of these evidences are like cords that that are woven together. So even if you were to manage to cut one, you have a theory that accounts for one. If it doesn't account for all three, then it's not a good theory, all right? You have to account for all of the evidence, uh, not just one theory that accounts for one or two things. So what do we have? thus far. We haven't proven the resurrection. We've said it's highly improbable that the body of Jesus was in the tomb. It's highly improbable that the disciples or the Romans or the Jews or animals or aliens stole the body. It's highly improbable that the disciples were lying. It's highly improbable that hundreds of people simply hallucinated. The most likely, the most probable logical explanation for the historical data is that the tomb was empty and the disciples actually saw the resurrected Christ. There's one more evidence, and that is the establishment of the church. In uh, in Star Wars Episode IV, uh, A a New Hope, is that what it's called, A New Hope? Carl, Star Wars expert? Yeah, okay. Uh, A New Hope, you have uh, Ben Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, tells Luke that uh, Darth Vader killed Luke's father, Anakin. Then in uh, episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, which is my favorite, we get one of the most shocking surprise twists of all time, right? Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. What happens? What is it, right? That, that Darth is actually Luke's uh, father, right? Gasp. Now that's great. That's a great shocking sort of twist. But that wasn't in the original script. That wasn't in the original plan. In the early versions of, uh, of, of the script, there were a number of them. I looked up some of them. But Darth wasn't Luke's father, Darth didn't, you know, wasn't hooked up to some sort of intergalactic sleep apnea machine. Uh, And Luke's name wasn't Luke Skywalker. It was Kane Starkiller, right? But anyway, things eventually changed over uh, over time. So you might be uh, tempted to think, well, the same thing kind of happens with the resurrection. That there's this evolution from Jesus is a good teacher to Jesus is a prophet to Jesus is resurrected to Jesus is divine, and, uh, and in fact, that's how a lot of people argue. They argue that there is this evolution that you see throughout uh, history. That's what a number of skeptics claim, that there were multiple groups that were competing for power and, and uh, that Jesus was just this uh, kind of uh, charismatic, enigmatic leader and uh, eventually that uh, evolved into the belief that he was divine and rose from the dead. There's a number of problems with that theory. First, is the idea that this took place in Jerusalem and the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because that was where the crucifixion took place. Took place. And that was where the, uh, the grave was located. Imagine that I read the news 
and it says that there was a 9.2 earthquake in Iceland yesterday and that thousands of people die, would I necessarily, instantaneously not believe that? No. Why would I, uh, I wouldn't have reason to necessarily not believe that, but imagine if I got on the Dallas Morning News and it said that there was a 9.2 earthquake in McKinney and that thousands of residents were killed. Would I be suspicious of that? Yeah, why? Because I was here. I didn't feel a 9.2 earthquake. Nobody that I know died last night of an earthquake. And so uh, the fact that the resurrection and the, the proclamation of the resurrection happened there in the very place that the crucifixion took place is a strong evidence that there wasn't this later development. All right, not only did it happen in the same time, but within a few, or in the same place, but within a few days, all right? The, the fact that this happened so early is another evidence. Within days of the resurrection, we have men preaching about it. Within months of the resurrection, we have the gospel pr- uh, spreading throughout the empire. Within a few years, we have documents written which testify to the resurrection. All of that is much too early for some sort of legend to have been created and spread. You have a number of books that are written within 20 years of the events. And all of the books are written within a generation. Some of the books that were written within 20 years actually rely on oral testimony uh, that was kind of passed along in a creedal form uh, going back to within probably a couple of years of the actual uh, date of the crucifixion and resurrection. Plus those early accounts, things like the, the book of Mark, which is probably the, the earliest gospel uh, to have been written, those early accounts are much too simple and show no signs of legendary development. This is very apparent when you uh, compare the, uh, the four uh, canonical gospels that we have with later embellished gospels. Uh, things like the Gospel of Peter, which is a forgery from uh, the earliest, uh, the, uh, the second century, uh, that, that sort of uh, legend, the Gospel of Peter, has all of the Jewish leaders, all of the Roman guards, and uh, many other people from the countryside, they gather together to watch the resurrection. So they actually leave the city, they go out from the city, they go to the tomb, and they sit there and they wait. Now I'm already suspicious. I've been hunting, and after 30 minutes I'm bored. Right, And that's if I think I'm going to see what I'm hunting, but these are people who don't already believe that the resurrection is gonna take place. So they go and they sit there. They sit there and they just stare at a tomb for hours upon hours upon hours, some of them up to days. I'm already out, right? Finally, uh, after days of waiting there, three men come out of the tomb with their heads reaching up to the clouds. Then what happens? A talking cross comes out of the tomb. This is what legend looks like, not what we see in the original Gospels. None of that sort of embellishment do we see in the biblical account of the empty tomb. And so it doesn't seem to have these legendary embellishments. So this isn't legend that develops over time. The resurrection is not something that eventually evolves. It is the preaching of the early church. When we share the Gospel today, When you share the gospel today, you might say something like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now that is absolutely true, but that's not the earliest message of the gospel. That is not what the apostles would preach. That is a part of the gospel. It's itself not the main point. The main point isn't that God loves you. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, how often is that phrase used in the book of Acts? Zero. How often is the love of God mentioned explicitly in the book of Acts? Zero, none. Does that mean God doesn't love you? 
No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that when the apostles are summarizing the, the gist, the basic, the summary of the gospel, they don't start necessarily with the love of God. What do they start with? Jesus Christ is crucified for you, has risen from the dead, and therefore you are to repent. That's the message of the gospel that you see throughout the book of the Acts, uh, throughout the book of uh, Acts. That's their summarization of the fundamental foundational message from the very beginning. Jesus is the Christ. He is raised from the dead, so therefore repent or be condemned. That's the message. You read the book of Acts, you read uh, early church history, and that is the overarching consistent message preached by Stephen and Peter and Paul. There is no doctrinal development. There is no legendary embellishment or anything like that. So the, ch- uh, the church wasn't founded originally on belief in just some abstract higher power or, or just the message, the simple message that God loves you, or the moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it was founded on belief in the resurrection. In the very city in which Christ was crucified, within a few days of the actual crucifixion, there's no time for this legendary development or alteration. So the establishment and extension of the early church is another evidence for the resurrection, because the resurrection was the primary distinctive of the early church. So there you go, that's at least some, again, we only have 50 minutes or so, that's at least some of the apologetic arguments for the resurrection. There are more, again, we had a short amount of time, but in a second, we're gonna do some Q&A, but first, I wanna briefly say uh, two things. Number one, I think it's important that you recognize this, that the strongest argument against the resurrection is also the strongest argument for the resurrection, The strongest argument against the resurrection is actually the strongest argument for the resurrection. The absolute uh, strongest argument against the resurrection is what? People generally don't rise from the dead. That's a great argument. In thousands of years of church history, of human history, uh, we don't have a single example of resurrection, except the one time that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And that's the point. How compelling is it if, uh, if the evidence is common. In other words, the fact that this has never happened before or since is kind of the point, right? The power of God, the glory of God is not displayed if everything is, is uh, uh, kind of premised upon something that happens all of the time, right? The uniqueness of the resurrection is what makes it so beautiful and what makes it so persuasive and compelling. That's the first point. Don't miss that fact. Don't dismiss the resurrection because it's scientifically impossible. The seeming impossibility is the very point of the resurrection. Christians aren't ignorant of that. We boast in that. That's part of the foundation of our hope. The second point is that at the end of the day, these arguments won't convince you they won't convince your family member. They won't convince your friend or your neighbor or your coworker. All we've done here is just give kindling in the hopes that the Spirit will ignite it. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead gives us new life and illumines our, uh, our hearts and minds with the truths of the gospel. So I want to pray for us to do just that, uh, for him to do just that, and then we will do some uh, Q&A. So Father, we're, we're grateful. We're grateful for the reality of the resurrection. And I pray that you would help us 
to, uh, to continue to search out, where we have questions, where we have doubts, where we uh, are wrestling with some of these truths, Lord, that you would help us to, to press in. I am uh, utterly confident that in uh, getting more information, Lord, that uh, this will be more compelling and more persuasive. And, uh, and so uh, I pray that you would help us to rest in the reality of the resurrection and to find our hope uh, in the fact that the, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead raises us to new life and will one day uh, raise us to new bodies as we experience our own resurrection. We pray these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name, amen.